1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Father, I just ask as we look at your word, your holy word, that your spirit would anoint us, that it would fill us, that you would remove all distractions of the mind, of the heart and of the soul. And Father, that you would feed your sheep. Help us to be fed by your word. Give us nourishment through this word. Strengthen our faith and increase our hope through this word. Spirit, I ask that you will give us understanding and that you'll give us application so that God might be glorified in us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we began our study of this first epistle of Peter last week by looking into the one who the Holy Spirit inspired to write this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one that we saw that was called to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life was forever changed. By that, he spent... About three and a half years of ministry with the Lord Jesus Christ. Walked with him, talked with him, saw the miracles that he performed. Saw the glory in him that was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Saw his Lord and Savior be crucified and put to death. But saw him raised from the dead and ate with him and fellowshiped with him many days after the resurrection. And we saw the change that happened in Peter's life from his first encounter with Jesus Christ until the day that he is writing this letter. Much has changed in the heart and in the soul and in the life of this man whom the Holy Spirit has inspired to write these words for us. He went from one who feared man to one who now fears God above all. He went from one who had a hope in natural Israel and a hope of a natural ruler that would deliver them from the oppression that they were under to his hope being in deliverance from his sin and his hope being in deliverance from this world to a new heaven and a new earth. He has had a radical transformation And this is the transformation that all of God's children go through by the work of the Spirit through His grace. 
And so now we begin the first part of this letter by looking at this wonderful greeting and introduction of Peter to those whom he is writing to. As we begin this study and as we begin this first message today, here are here is the two important questions that you need to ask yourself and that Peter, I think, is trying to answer for the people that he's writing to. The first one is, what is your hope in? What is your hope in? And then the second question that I think he is answering is, what is your identity? So what is your hope in? And what is your identity? And those are two huge, important questions for you to answer today. What is your hope in? And what is your identity as a person? And in order to stand, in order to answer what is our hope in, we must see as Peter writes and gives the biblical understanding and the biblical definition of hope. We must understand what hope is. Because so, you know, in our day and time with the, 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 the change of language, hope has kind of lost its, some of its meaning. Hope is not a wish. Hope is not a wish. I don't know how many times Pastor Jerry said that. Hope is not a wish upon a star. I hope, I, I, I hope that I'll win the lottery. I hope that I'll, I'll marry the man of my dreams or the woman of my dreams. I hope that I'll be the smartest person in the room. It's not a wish upon a star. It's also not a blind leap of faith. Many people think that biblical hope is just a blind leap of faith, a blind shot in the dark. That's not biblical hope either. Biblical hope, as it is defined, is a confidence and an expectation in the truth. So you put those two together, it is a confident expectation. It is a reality. It is something that is is secure. It is a trust, something that you can trust in, something that you can bank in, something that you can rely upon. That is what hope is. So what is your confident expectation in today? And many have answers for this in their own life. Many, many, for many, their hope is in health. As long as they're healthy and as long as they they stay fit, and as long as they take all the, the things that they've got to take in order to be healthy, then that their hope is in that. Their hope is in health and wellness. For others, they say, well, my hope is in politics. As long, as long as we have the right politicians in office, as long as we have the right party in office, then I can have a confident expectation for myself and future generations that everything will be okay. So their hope is in politics. For others, their hope might be in money, financial security, financial stability. As long as I and my family have means, have, have support, have enough to be able to provide for everything that we want, then I can have a confident expectation for my future. As long as the stock market is stable, as long as the dollar is, is stable, then we can have 
hope. And you can list several other things that people have hope in. But as you answer the question in your life and as I answer the question in my life, what is our hope in? My prayer and my heart's desire as, as your pastor and as a fellow believer in the Lord is that your hope goes far beyond those things and that your hope lies in something much more stable and concrete than those things. That you have something to hope in that is greater than all those things. When all those things disappoint you and fail, you have something to hope in that is greater than all those things and that is eternal. And I think that's what Peter gets at in, in, in this letter. Our hope, as we sing about, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Our hope should be built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in the triune God and his perfect plan of salvation that he accomplishes from beginning to end. This is so important because we live in a sinful and fallen world. We live in a world that is full of wickedness. We live in a world full of, full of hate. We live in a world full of pain. We live in a world that, that calls evil good and good evil. We live in a world that's full of trials and temptations. And so we need something to stabilize us. We need something that we can have to have a firm foundation to stand on. So as Jesus said, when the winds and the storms blow against you in your faith, you have a firm foundation so that you will not be shaken in the midst of these difficult times. Paul, uh, Peter is writing to those who are being persecuted for their faith. He's writing to those who are living in instability because of persecution from the Romans, because they have been dispersed from their homeland, and they are strangers and pilgrims in this, in this new land that they're living in. And so they need to have a foundation that stabilizes them as they try to serve Christ in their current culture. And so this is his main message. It's a message of hope. What is your hope in today? Is it in health and wellness? Is it in money? Is it in politics? In prosperity? I hope that it is in none of those things. Because all those things will fail you at one time or another. But you can trust in a good God who is trustworthy. That's where you ought to place your hope. So what is the basis of your hope? You know, because I think that's what he starts out with in this letter as he's going to talk a lot about hope. He starts with the foundation. What is the basis? So if your hope's in God... If you've, if you've answered that and says, as a believer, yes, my hope's in God. Well, what is the basis of your confident expectation in this God? Because a lot of times we get messed up. We think, well, the basis of my hope, I, is, I'm going to have hope as long as I'm doing what's right. As long as I'm doing what's good. As long as I'm following the, the law. As long as, and it becomes about what you do. And even people have taken it further and said, 
Your hope is based on your free will. Whatever you choose and decide to do, that's what your hope is is in. They've, They've basically made it that. They've made free will the basis of their hope. Or their good works. As long as, as long as I do these certain things and I don't do these certain things, as long as I'm a good person, a, a good human being, a good citizen, as long as I'm a good parent, as long as I'm a good child, then I can have a confident expectation that everything will be alright in my life, that God will overlook all the, the bad and evil that I do, and that the, the, I'll have more marks in the good category than the evil category, and there'll be a place in heaven for me. You've heard that, you've seen that, you've read that in a lot of things out there in the world. But that's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what Peter teaches. And it's not what God wants you to believe. So, what is your hope in? And then the second question is, what is your identity? Because our identity is tied to our hope, and our hope is tied to our identity. If you understand who you are, then you will understand what you have to hope in. And so these two things are tied together because, again, a lot of people's identity is caught up into these other things that they're hoping in. Their identity is in how much that they make. Their identity is in what kind of job they have. Their identity is in what kind of family they have. Their identity is in what kind of education they have. Their identity is in what kind of politics that they have. Their identity is in what kind of political party they're affiliated with. Their identity is so on and so forth. And then their hope is in these things that their identity is in. So Peter is addressing these things in this first part of this letter. And so we must seek to answer these questions. And I believe that he does a wonderful job through the Holy Spirit of answering these questions. So Peter is writing to believers who have been scattered abroad because of persecution for their faith in Jesus. They are going through many trials and temptations. And we must remember this. They are living in the midst of a pagan society, a pagan and godless culture. Rome has taken over and instituted all of their pagan ways, pagan idolatries, pagan worship, pagan practices, sinful. They're they're living in the midst of a sinful society. So not only have they been removed from Israel, not only have they been removed from their homelands, now they've been placed into a sinful and corrupt society where the worship of everything false is going on around them. Does that sound familiar? We kind of still live in that day and age today. We live in the midst of a sinful age, a sinful generation. We live in the midst of a pagan generation. And so this message is just as relevant to you today as it was to them when Peter was writing it to them. And so Peter begins his letter to them by reminding them of their great hope. What is the message you need to hear when you're living in darkness, when you're, when you're being persecuted for your faith, when you're going through trials? Oh, everything will be okay. No, you need a message of something that you can trust in, something that you can be confident in. He reminds them of their hope. 
And he starts out by reminding them who they really are and that the basis of their hope lies in their spiritual identity with the triune God. This is foundational to you as a believer to understand. If you're going to have real and lasting hope, you must understand and have a grasp on who you are, who you have been made like, who you have been united to, who you have been united to, this triune God and the work of salvation that he is doing in your life. So here's the proposition for this morning. The basis of your hope is your spiritual identity with the triune God and the complete salvation that he is working out in your life. The basis of your hope is your spiritual identity with the triune God and the complete salvation that he is working out in your life. And I hope that you'll see that and be encouraged by that this morning. So we'll have three points as we look at this text today. Number one, know your earthly identity. Strangers and pilgrims. Number two, know your spiritual identity. Chosen, set apart, covered by the blood of Christ. And then number three, know the result of your identity. So know your earthly identity, know your spiritual identity, and know the result of your identity. Now let's start in verse 1 as we consider our first point. Know your earthly identity, strangers and pilgrims. He starts out, of course, as most letters do, by saying who wrote this letter? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now you might just skim over that and say, well, that's just introductory. That's just normal for them to do that. We put our name at the end of the letter, but in these times they put their name at the beginning of the letter, and they're greeting it at the begin, beginning. You might just say, well, that's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul said the same thing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, it's more than just a trite phrase or saying or just a, hey, how you doing today? I'm Marvin. Who are you? No, this is Peter identifying himself with who he is. Peter he didn't say Peter, a fisherman from, from Capernaum. He didn't say Peter, the leader of the church, the early church. He said Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So right off the beginning, he's stating his identity, which is tied to the person of Jesus Christ and his calling in his life. Remember, Jesus called Peter. He said, you are mine. You are one of my chosen ones. You are my apostle. I'm going to send you out. You're my delegate. You're my messenger. You're my ambassador. And Peter says, this now is my identity. This is who I am. I am no longer a fisherman from Capernaum. I'm no longer a brother to Andrew. I'm no longer a worker for Zebedee. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. I am his ambassador and I am 100% in this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it also reminds the readers and it reminds you that Peter has the authority of one of the, as one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as his representative, these words are as the words of Christ to the church. Because Christ gave his authority, passed his authority to the apostles. And so Peter reminds them, I am an apostle. I am a representative of Jesus Christ. 
And therefore, you need to listen to these words because they carry the weight of not just Peter. They carry the weight of the risen Christ. They carry the weight of God. So he knew his earthly identity and also his spiritual identity. Peter is believed to be in Rome at this time. It's between 60 and 65 A.D. Not many years after this, Peter would be put to death. Peter would be crucified. But not in the same way that Jesus Christ was crucified. If we believe what history has recorded, Peter requested that he be crucified upside down. Because he did not want to be crucified in the same way that his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, had. Showing his humility, showing his faith, showing his belief in Christ. But right now, Peter has been a leader. We saw in Acts how he was a leader of the early church and, and was the, the, one of the main leaders in Jerusalem. And then uh, he goes to Rome, which... We read of in chapter 5, verse 13, it calls Babylon. It says Babylon. That's just another name for Rome at the time. Rome was the new Babylon. And so he's in Rome writing to these believers who have been scattered abroad into these areas of uh, what was considered at the time Asia, Asia Minor. And this is in the north part of Asia Minor. Uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this spreads out over a, a large uh, terrain. In fact, if you were to think of it in our terms today, it would be like from Texas all the way to California. Or from here to New York. That's about the distance that he's covering in these, in these cities that he listed. There's a lot of people that he's writing to in a lot in a, in a in a large area. This is a general epistle that would be distributed in that area and also be distributed to other churches. We know that it was holy writ and holy scripture. But as he writes to them, he, he identifies himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But then he says, to the pilgrims or to the strangers or to the aliens of those in these places. And so what he's doing right away is he's Reminding them of their earthly identity. You are strangers. You are pilgrims in this place. And don't shy away from acknowledging that. You are strangers. You are pilgrims. He would go on to say. In chapter 2. Verse 11. Beloved. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. The word strangers means exile or an alien or a foreigner. Not just because they had been driven away from their homeland, but because of what God had done in them through the work of grace, now the world is no longer their home. You see, you've got to understand that about your earthly identity. 
Your earthly identity is changed when you're born again. You're no longer, this home, this world is no longer your home. You're no longer a citizen of the earth. Now you are a citizen of heaven. Now you have an earthly home. And now you are a stranger and a pilgrim here in this life. And you must acknowledge that. That is part of your earthly identity. I am one that is a stranger and a pilgrim here, a sojourner. My time here is temporary. And Peter is reminding them of that as they're going through suffering, as they're going through trials, as they're going through persecution. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're strangers and pilgrims and you're sojourners here. And this will only last for a little while. Remember, you have a home in heaven that's reserved for you. You're citizens of heaven. So have hope. Have joy even in the midst of this. Because this world is not your home. And your hope is not in this world. Reminds us of those in the Old Testament who had faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 says, They acknowledged that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And it says that they looked for another city whose builder and maker was God. And we think of, you know, the... The Old Testament saints, how they went from place to place. You know, they went from, 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 from country to country. And, they, and we think, oh yeah, they were strangers and pilgrims. But they were just a type and shadow of us. We also are like them. Even though we have houses that we live in and we have places that we live at, that is not your home. Your home is in heaven. Your real home. Your future lies in heaven because that's where God is. That's where the triune God is. And that's, where your salva- that's what your salvation is in. And so we would be encouraged, we would be instructed, we would be commanded by John in his epistle, do not love this world. Do not hope in this world. Do not trust in the things in this world. Do not have your affections so tied up in the things of this world. He says, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. Why is that? He says because if you're loving the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And he says the things of this world are passing away. But he who does the will of the Lord abides forever. So your hope needs to be in something eternal, not in something temporary. So it's important for us to recognize and acknowledge our earthly identity. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are sojourners in this world. We look for a city whose builder and maker is God. Our hope is not in this world. Our identity is not tied up in this earth. So after reminding them of their earthly identity, they are strangers who have been scattered abroad. Now Peter moves and he lays out the basis of their hope and what their identity is really in, their spiritual identity in verse 2. So number two, know your spiritual identity. The basis of your hope lies not in where you were born, not in what nation you belong to, not in how much money is in your bank account, not in what kind of education that you received, Not by how many certificates do you have. Not by where you work. Your identity. 
is based, is founded upon the work of the triune God in your heart and soul. God the Father chose you before the world began. Jesus the Son redeems you by His blood. And the Holy Spirit applies the merits of Christ to you and sets you apart. And the blood of Christ cleanses you and sanctifies you for obedience in faith. This is the work of the triune God. These words are saturated with God. They are saturated with the Trinity. I mean, if you want somebody to know what you believe in, then from the very beginning, you state it right up front. And what we know that Peter believes in is he believes in first, his identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, that he believes in the triune God and the work of the triune God and that his hope is based on the work of the triune God. And you get that in two verses. Elect. That means selected, chosen, by implication, favorite, to choose out from among. Peter reminds these scattered Christians, he reminds these persecuted Christians, he reminds these fearing Christians, remember, God has chosen you from all of the people of the world and He has set His affection upon you and He did this before the world began and it had nothing to do with you or your works. God set His love upon you. He chose you. And what's interesting about this is that in the Greek text, the word actually appears before the word pilgrims. So when Paul's writing to them, he says, elect pilgrims. Remember, you're strangers, you're sojourners, but you're chosen, you're special, you're precious. You are elect aliens. Elect aliens. You have been chosen by God. Why were you chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You weren't chosen because God looked down through time and He saw that you were going to be one who would believe in Him. God didn't choose you because He saw good qualities that you would have and He thought that you would be a good candidate for salvation. God who sees all things from beginning to end saw that you were the most sinful person that would ever walk the face of the earth. And He decided to love you because it pleased Him. I mean, if you want to have hope in your salvation, that's a good place to start. It starts in God and Him choosing whom to save. Him being the one who moved first. Him loving you and then you responding to that love. According to the foreknowledge of God. Not just that God had knowledge of you beforehand, but this has to do, this, has, this means a previous determination. God chose you because He determined to choose you. And we read in Romans that those whom He foreknew, He what? pre Destinated. He predetermined to save. Previous determination 
forethought. Nothing in you, not because of your free will, but rather because of God's free grace. God elected a people in the Old Testament. He chose Abraham. He chose to make a people who became known as the Hebrews. And we read about this in real quickly in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. In God's choosing of, of Abraham and God's choosing of Israel in the Old Testament is also a good picture for us, a good representation for us of God's continued work of election in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself. A special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. What does your hope lie in today? It lies in the fact that God, in the same way, chose you out of all the people of the earth and set His love upon you, set His affection upon you, and He has set you aside as holy for Himself. And listen to this. This is important. Verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So your hope lies in the electing love of God the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Father loved you. God the Father loved you before the world began. Before He even ever created the world. He loved you. And He chose you. And that should be precious to us. And it's the basis of our hope. God elected a people in the Old Testament... He has elected a people in the New Testament. Peter, we go on to write in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Why have you received mercy? Why can you have hope today? Because God chose you. He elected you. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, Paul says, According as He has chosen us in Him. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption, 
to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. He chose us. He chose you in Christ before the world began. Why? Because it pleased him and because it glorifies him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul would remind the church at Thessalonica this important truth. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then as we said, Romans 8.29, For whom he did foreknow, them he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, it is God the Father who chose us. Now, number two, how is this choice of God executed out in your life? That's our next phrase. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God through or in sanctification of the Spirit. So not only do we see that we are chosen by God but before the world began, but in our life when we are born again by the Spirit of God, when we are regenerated, we are set apart by the Holy Spirit. We are made holy. We are set apart for a purpose, for a special use. This word sanctification means purification. As they purified the instruments in the use of the tabernacle worship, they were set apart and they were to be used only in the worship of the tabernacle. Because they were to be made holy to the Lord because the Lord is holy. This is what He does with you. Because you're sinful, because you're corrupt, because you're radically depraved, He sends His Spirit and He applies the merits of Jesus Christ and He washes you and He cleanses you and He sets you apart as holy before Himself. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Set apart for a holy purpose. This is also the basis of your hope. You were chosen by God and now God sets you apart. He sets you apart for His work. So whatever comes your way, pain, suffering, trials, financial collapse, economic collapse, political turmoil, doesn't matter. God has set you apart as holy for himself. And he's going to use you in whatever generation you live in, whatever time you live in. You have been set apart for his purpose and you're going to bring glory and honor to him. He's going to use all these things in your life to bring about his glory in your life. That's a good basis of your hope. The work of the Spirit is to call you from death to life, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from an unholy to holy, from disobedience to obedience. This work of separation by the Spirit of God is continual in your life. He that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Spirit and the basis of your hope in the triune God. Just as much as God the Father chose you, just as much God the Holy Spirit regenerates you and applies the merits of Jesus Christ to your account. 
And He continues to set you apart and make you more like Jesus Christ from the beginning of your spiritual life to the end of your natural life. And so we read about this all throughout the New Testament. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. He regenerates us. We're called by the Spirit. It's the inward call. We're set apart. We're given a new heart. We're given new affections. We're given a new mind. We're given a new will. This is what your hope lies in. Not how good a person you are. Not how well you listen. Your hope is in the work of the Spirit in you. That God is performing in you. We have to yield to the Spirit. We have to walk by the Spirit. We have to follow the Spirit. Yes. But it is all the Spirit that is doing the work. We are passive. He is working in us. His good pleasure. In fact, in a practical way, when Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and giving practical instructions to husbands and wives, he's commending them, he's encouraging them what they should be doing as a spouse, but he also reminds them this is the work of the Spirit. Wives, verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. How can you do that? How can you submit to a sinful man? How can you submit to a corrupt individual? How can you submit to a flawed being? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... Let the wise be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How can you do that? How can you love a sinner? How can you love someone who is flawed? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, set apart, and cleanse her with the washing of water By the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit, in his presence, in his work, he applies the merits of Christ's obedience and he applies the, the, the death of Christ and his, his satisfying the wrath of God to your account. And so now, in the eyes of the Father, in the eyes of the triune God, you stand before him with no spot, no blemish. You're pure and holy before his eyes. And that's what your hope should rest in. When you sin, when you're disobedient, when you fail to do what God has commanded, when you fail to do what you should, Don't let your hope get down because you're looking at yourself and what a failure you are. Get your eyes back that your hope is on God. Now the basis of your hope is in the work of the Spirit that even though, yes, you have done this, yet because you are His, you will repent, you will turn, and you will continue to follow Him imperfectly. So it is how this choice of God 
is executed out in your life. And then thirdly, what is the result of God the Father choosing you and the Holy Spirit setting you apart? And we've already talked about it a little bit, but it's to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His obedience and His sacrifice unto the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing thing that happens in salvation. Amazing thing that happens. It's called justification. And what justification is, is it's taking the obedience of Christ, His perfect obedience to the law of God, His perfect obedience to do everything that God had commanded, and it's giving it to you. As though you had obeyed every law of God as perfectly as Jesus Christ did. And so you have his act of obedience applied to your account. But not only that, you have the merits of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of his blood on the cross. Just like in the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice the animal, they would take the blood of that animal and they would sprinkle it upon the altar. And even in some instances, they would sprinkle it on the people and they would sprinkle it on the law, consecrating it and saying, This is reminding you that God has set you apart, God has forgiven you, and God has made you holy. So when it talks about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, that's what it's reminding you, is that your sins have been covered, your sins have been washed, you are holy. The merits of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, has been applied to your heart and to your soul. Therefore, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are holy. And what that leads to, what that leads to, being chosen by God, being set apart by the Holy Spirit, by the merits of Christ, the obedience of Christ being applied to your account, is it also leads to submission to Lord as, to Jesus as Lord, and you submit in obedience to Him. Therefore, now you walk in obedience, not to gain the favor of God, not to earn the favor of God, but you walk in obedience because you have been accepted by God. And you have His favor, and you have His love. That's the basis of your hope. Jesus' perfect obedience is applied to you, and all your sins have been forgiven. Because of this, you will now live in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Election without separation is not election. People want to talk about election, but they want to talk about no separation in the life. That is not election. That's not biblical election. It's not what Peter was teaching here. The reason that they were, they, that they were exercising faith and obedience in their life was because they had been chosen by God before the foundation of the world and because they had been regenerated and given the gift of faith. And so if you don't have faith and obedience in the life, you don't have election. But if you have election, you have separation. Election without obedience is no election. Jesus said, I have chosen you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I have ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. What is that? Obedience. Submission to the will of God. Bringing glory to Him. The purpose of God electing us and regenerating us is so that we now have the freedom and power to believe and obey Him. If God didn't choose you and the Holy Spirit didn't regenerate you, you would have no power, you would have no will 
to obey Him. But because He has chosen you, and because He has regenerated you, and because His Holy Spirit indwells in you, you now have the freedom and the power and the will to obey Him. Now it's your heart's desire. And even though you don't do it perfectly, and even though it's flawed, yet it is still your heart's desire. Peter would go on later to say in this first chapter, talk about the importance of, of their obedience to Christ, to their, of their faith in Christ. Because they have been chosen, because they have been redeemed. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. You see, it's going to be made evident in your life if you're one of the elect. It's going to be made evident if you've been filled with the Spirit. Because you're going to live in obedience to the truth. And you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ with fervent love. And then we read what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to talk about being saved by grace. And not by works. I want to talk about our salvation being all of God. That's biblical. But you can't exclude faith. And you can't exclude obedience. From the work of salvation. Because just as much as that it took the grace of God to save us, the grace of God continues to be needed in our life and it's worked out in this gift of faith that He has given us. And it's seen in obedience in the life which are seen as good works which God has ordained before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. So you weren't saved according to your works you were saved by His grace through faith. For we are His workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You were chosen and set apart and covered by the blood of Christ for obedience to Christ. To bring forth fruit for good works, for love, for joy, for peace, for patience, for kindness, for gentleness, for self-control. Which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So you're, know your spiritual identity and know that your hope is based upon that. The work of the triune God in your life. This is the basis of your hope. Lastly and briefly, he ends this by saying, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now that might seem like a, one of the trite sayings that Paul and Peter uses, but it's not. This is a result of your union with Christ. 
These are two spiritual blessings that flow to you out of your union with Christ through the work of the Spirit. And he is begging and he is praying for this to be multiplied. For this to overflow, for this to be in abundance in their life. It's my prayer for you. My prayer for me that this grace and this peace that flows from our identity and our hope being tied to the triune God will overflow in your life. Grace, the divine favor of God, the unmerited favor of God, the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, the kindness of God, God giving us what we don't deserve. Oh, may that be multiplied in your life. May you grow in the grace of God. May the grace of God be multiplied in your life through times of pain, through times of suffering, through times of sorrow. Dark days are coming in our country. Dark days are coming in the society that we live in. They're here. And it's going to be worse for our future generation unless we have a change. And so grace is going to be very important for us and for them as we live in the midst of an evil world. And also peace. Peace is calmness. Peace is quietness. Peace is stillness. Peace is serenity. Do you need that in your life? Do we need that in the day and age which we're living in? In the midst of chaos, in the midst of storms? We must be prepared that things are going to get worse. We must be prepared. That things are going to get worse. Now, should we be praying for a revival? Yes. Can God work a revival in our country? Yes. But we also need to be prepared, if He doesn't, that things will continue to get worse. Persecution will get worse for Christians. So we are still living in a blessed country. We're still living in a blessed time. We're still living with many freedoms, but those freedoms can be taken away. But what's going to give you peace? What's going to give you calmness? What's going to give you stillness if that happens? Your hope being in this and not in the things of this world. So grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a peace that passes all understanding. It passes all understanding and it will keep and it will guard your heart in the midst of anxiousness. Do not be anxious or careful about anything, but by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And when you do that, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts. So in conclusion, I pray that your hope will rest in the work of this triune God, in working out your salvation, that your identity is in Him, your, the basis of your hope is in Him, and that this will give you joy even in the midst of trials and temptations. If you believe in this Christ today, submit to this Christ, confess this Christ, follow this Christ, identify with His church by becoming a part of His church his local assembly, submit and serve 
him in the local church and in your life and in your community. And if you do that, then you can sing the song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. May God bless you and keep you is my prayer.